This episode of New Politics was recorded on the 1st of October, 2021, and produced on the land of the Wangal people. Welcome to the New Politics Podcast. In this episode, the resignation of the New South Wales Premier. We look at Malcolm Turnbull's interventions on submarines, vaccinations and climate change. And we ask an insider for their perspective on Christina Keneally representing South West Sydney. I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, looking for a purchaser for eight nuclear submarines in my backyard. Just wanted to point out that we will never invite Pauline Hanson onto the New Politics podcast, and this is in reference to the journalist Jessica Rowe naively interviewing Hanson about love, raising children and resilience. Other countries around the world are trying to stamp out racism, but Australia seems to be encouraging it. The mainstream media has given Pauline Hanson a platform over the past 25 years. We wouldn't invite Adolf Hitler to talk about his love of dogs, vegetarianism or his resilience when he invaded the Sudetenland, so why would we do that? So rest assured, Pauline Hanson will never be invited onto the New Politics podcast. I have to say, I I would like to see Hanson interviewed by a person of colour or a person of non-Anglo background and watch her squirm under the questions. And a big shout out to our new Patreon subscribers. There is some different material that might be of interest to our listeners, or if you just want to support New Politics because you like what we do, you can find all of the details at our website, newpolitics.com.au, and it's a great way to support independent journalism. I was advised late yesterday afternoon the Independent Commission Against Corruption will today uh, release a public statement in which it will state it is investigating allegations made about me concerning matters relating to the former member for Wagga Wagga. I state categorically I've always acted with the highest level of integrity. History will demonstrate that I've always executed my duties again with the highest level of integrity for the benefit of the people of New South Wales who I have had the privilege to serve. I cannot predict how long it will take the ICAC to complete this investigation, let alone deliver a report in circumstances where I was first called to give evidence at a public hearing nearly 12 months ago. Therefore, it pains me to announce that I have no option but to resign from the Office of Premier. My resignation will take effect as soon as the New South Wales Liberal Party can elect a new parliamentary leader. In order to allow the new leader and government a fresh start, I'll also resign from the New South Wales Parliament once I've consulted the Electoral Commission on appropriate timing for a by-election given the COVID restrictions. My resignation as Premier could not occur at a worse time, but the timing is completely outside of my control as the ICAC has chosen to take this action during the most challenging weeks of the most challenging times in the state's history. That is the ICAC's prerogative. Resigning at this time is against every instinct in my being and something which I do not want to do. I love my job and I love serving the community, but I have been given no option following the statement that's been issued today. 
The New South Wales Premier, Gladys Berejiklian, has just resigned after the New South Wales Independent Commission Against Corruption announced that they were going to investigate the award of community grants between 2012 and 2018. And this was during the time that she was the New South Wales Treasurer and overlaps into her time as the Premier. And we'll also investigate her relationship with the disgraced former MP, Daryl Maguire. She has announced that this could not have come at a worse time and maybe she should have thought about that instead of acting corruptly at the time. And she's also claimed that it's happening amid the darkest days in the state's history. And again, it's unclear whether she's referring to the pandemic or the fact that she's had to resign over allegations of corruption. The mainstream media will be very unhappy about this. Bera Jiklian has been their pin-up poster who can do no wrong, infamously promoting her as the woman who saved Australia just before her mishandling of the Delta coronavirus caused half of Australia to go into lockdown and close to an economic meltdown. And just today, the Australian Financial Review announced Berejiklian as the number one person in their annual power index. It seems like they got that one wrong as well. I would have preferred to see Berejiklian resign over her mishandling of the pandemic, but it looks like it's the corruption that got in first. I've been saying for a very long time, since even before the first, that She's presiding over a corrupt government, even if she herself is not personally corrupt. She's letting it go through. And of course, there was that notorious phone conversation where she says to the ex-member for Wagga, I don't need to know about that. I'm not surprised, really. I'm surprised at the timing. I thought she'd be able to brazen that out. And when I heard there was a press conference, I thought that she would be standing up with a uh, statement of defiance and threatening to sue anyone, although given how well her Liberal colleagues, Christian Porter and John Barillaro's defamation actions are going, she may well have decided not to do that. As it happens, she is blaming ICAC for launching an investigation in the middle of a pandemic, which is a little bit like blaming the police for pulling you over for speeding while you're going over the speed limit. The law doesn't stop. We don't say, well, the pandemic's on, so every other law now doesn't matter. Of course, we still have to obey the laws. And in a pandemic, sometimes you have to obey extra laws. You may get away with stuff because resources are elsewhere, but the law is the law. And the neoliberal government of New South Wales only likes to apply it selectively. When it catches up to them, they don't like it. And that was one of the things that came out of the... that she is, again hard done by because she's suspected of doing the wrong things. She is being investigated. Investigations may lead to arrest and charging. We don't know what's going to happen. It must be something that they're very confident about and it must be something pretty big for them to force this. Without the press even saying we can cover this through like they did the last time, we'll blame it on a dud boyfriend. They've stepped away from it this time, which I think is very indicative of the serious nature of what she's been accused of. And we've been calling for the resignation of Gladys Berejiklian for some time now, primarily over the corruption allegations and also for the mishandling of the pandemic. For most of 2020, the Berejiklian government handled the pandemic very well, but 2021 has been a totally different story. So there's two issues she should have resigned on, those issues of allegations of corruption between 2012 and 2018 and her handling of the Delta outbreak. And we also have to compare her behaviours to other New South Wales premiers and politics in New South Wales sails very close to the wind on law and sometimes it actually goes past that point. 
2014, the Premier of the day in New South Wales, Barry O'Farrell, he resigned because he failed to declare a gift of a bottle of red wine. Now, there's a wide range of other reasons behind his resignation that we can't really talk about because if we did, we'd get sued and probably end up in court. But essentially, he resigned over a bottle of red wine. The allegations against Berejiklian, they seem to be far more severe. And as you rightly pointed out, we don't know the full extent of what those allegations are. And we won't know the full extent of what sort of corruption has gone on in the past. But everything will be revealed in good time. But essentially, the upshot is that she couldn't have continued as Premier of New South Wales. She probably should have stepped down some time ago. And today is as good as any other time, really. She did point out it is the worst time in a sense, and they're just about to open up New South Wales. I think rather riskily, I think there's a lot of risk in opening up New South Wales at the levels they want to open it up. But nonetheless, that is a process that requires management. There will be a new Premier. As we speak, the word is is that it will be Dominic Perrottet, who I think may go down as worse again, given his uh, management of the eye care board. As always, we will give them a couple of weeks to see how he settles in. And if he is doing a good job, we will examine that too. And I guess the next question is, well, what happens from now on? So obviously there'll be a new New South Wales Premier. This will be the fourth Premier in six years for the Liberal Party. So that's not really a sign of stability. The other spanner in the works is, well, how will all of this affect the timing of the federal election? There was some talk about the federal election being held on November the 13th, but to run a successful federal election campaign, if you want to win that election, well, you have to carry New South Wales with you. We've just had the Premier of New South Wales resign because of corruption allegations, and this is the home state of Scott Morrison. So it's going to be a difficult process for Morrison to navigate. And I I think that it's also fair to assume that we probably won't have a federal election in November. I've never really thought a November election is on the cards. Having said that, I've never really thought it impossible either. If he does call it, there'll be a lot of people don't vote on state matters in federal elections and vice versa. And now, to be fair, there is an element of truth in that. But given how closely Morrison and Berejiklian have been aligned, even if they don't like each other, she's basically followed the Morrison plan in opening up and letting the virus rip with some concessions to New South Wales Health. I can't see it not being an election factor, at least in New South Wales, where given his popularity in Victoria, probably Queensland, Western Australia, he's going to need as many New South Wales seats as he can get, I think. And again, I haven't looked at the preference deals and things like that, which may also give him confidence to to go in November. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud, Spotify and Amazon Audible, or find us at newpolitics.com.au and you can now follow us at Patreon. Up next, we look at Malcolm Turnbull's interventions on submarines, vaccinations and climate change and a big swipe at the current Prime Minister. The former Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull, has launched a series of attacks on the current Prime Minister, and he's still upset from that day back in 2018 when Scott Morrison said this. 
Can you rule out having any leadership ambitions? Me? Yeah. This is my leader. (laughs) And I'm ambitious for him. But then proceeded to remove Turnbull as Prime Minister the following day. It's safe to say that Scott Morrison wouldn't be on the Turnbull's Christmas card list and there's definitely no love lost between them. But aside from that, we have to take seriously what former Prime Ministers have to say when they speak publicly. At the National Press Club address this week, Malcolm Turnbull had this to say about the government's decision to cancel the $90 billion French submarine deal. Mr Morrison has not acted in good faith. He deliberately deceived France. He makes no defence of his conduct other than to say it was in Australia's national interest. So is that Mr Morrison's ethical standard with which Australia is now tagged? Australia will act honestly unless it's judged in our national interest to deceive. It was as recently as 30 August that our defence and foreign ministers met with their French counterparts and publicly re-emphasised the importance of the submarine program. Two weeks later, on the day Mr Morrison dumped the President of France with a text message, the Department of Defence formally advised Naval Group that the project was on track and ready to enter into the next set of contracts. The media has been gleefully briefed that Mr Morrison struck the deal with Boris Johnson and Joe Biden at the G20 in July, shortly before going to Paris, where our Prime Minister confirmed to President Macron his continuing commitment to the submarine deal. France's foreign minister has described Australia's conduct as a stab in the back. France's Europe minister has already poured poured cold water on the prospects of concluding an EU-Australian free trade agreement. Australia has proved it can't be trusted. And then he went on to attack the Morrison government for a disastrous vaccination program. You know, the, the biggest problem is is not foreign perceptions of Australia, but the reality here at home, that we're, you know, one of the slowest vaccine rollouts in the world. It's the biggest failure in public administration that I that I can recall, you know, how the, the federal government had one big job, which was to get plenty of vaccines and get everyone vaccinated quickly, and they failed. It's, a, it's an incredible failure. Some Liberal Party MPs and friends in the media have started to retaliate against Malcolm Turnbull. Others are saying, thank goodness someone is finally speaking out against this. But is all of this just sour grapes from a man who was deposed by Scott Morrison, or does he have some legitimate claims? Malcolm Turnbull is a very difficult character to pin down. He is the man, of course, who killed the world-class NBN that we were on track for. Malcolm Turnbull brought this in at the behest of Tony Abbott, who was at the behest of Rupert Murdoch, because Murdoch was worried about the effect that FTTP would have on his own uh, pay television interests. And it basically has put Australia behind. Instead of having one of the very best internets in the world, we have one of the worst. We can talk about his plebiscite, which he was forced into for gay marriage. He is, as far as we all know, in favour of gay marriage. But instead of standing up to the party and just changing the law, he was forced into an embarrassing plebiscite. Again, had this all sides thing where it was a postal vote and Tony Abbott and the more conservative members of parliament really tried to derail it. But it was an embarrassing way to bring in such an important piece of legislation for so many people. 
and from a supporter of the cause. It was a very badly handled way of doing things. He saw, actually, and Malcolm Turnbull was also the one whose government signed off on the submarine contracts. Now, that was one of those political moves where it was suggested that there'd be a big boost for Adelaide. Turns out that that wasn't the case at all, that there were no jobs. Now, it was 300 jobs at the base till the contract got changed. 300 jobs is a lot of jobs in Adelaide. That has a roll-on effect through the whole city. Christopher Pine, I think, saw the writing on the wall and got out when he realised what the fallout was going to be. He was the minister in charge. But Malcolm Turnbull was the prime minister. It was a dud contract, let's be fair. But it was a contract. Turnbull's criticisms were wide and varied, but the the focus of his attack was on the cancelled submarine deal that you referred to before with the French government. But more information about this deal is coming out, or the way that it was cancelled is coming out, that that it was cancelled by text message. Morrison claimed that he didn't speak to the French president, Emmanuel Macron, because Morrison doesn't speak French. But Macron actually speaks perfect English, so I'm not sure what the issue there was. We also found out that the naval group are experts in producing nuclear-powered submarines, but they were asked by the Australian government to produce diesel-powered submarines, and that was one of the reasons given for the cancellation of the contract. And the fallout from this will continue for some time. The free trade deal that was going to be negotiated with the European Union That's been put on hold. International diplomacy does require a great deal of skill, but the worst act that any country can do to another is humiliate them on the international stage. Mm. Morrison humiliated the Chinese government when he suggested that China was behind the onset of the coronavirus pandemic in early 2020, and that caused the loss of key export markets for Australian producers, and it's likely that this stoush with the French government will cause problems for access to European markets as well. So there's two major errors in international diplomacy caused by the Morrison government that will cause problems for Australian exporters for many years to come. Why you would want to annoy the second biggest or the biggest market in the world, which is the EU. And I've alluded to this before, I think. There is this whole Anglosphere attitude in which if all the English-speaking countries got together particularly the the white Anglo-speaking countries, we could somehow stave off the rest of the world. New Zealand doesn't want a bar of it. I don't think Canada wants a bar of it. South Africa definitely doesn't want a bar of it. And of course, South Africa is not a, a white country. It never was, but the model that we're talking about dates back to where it was considered a white country because of the apartheid. Uh, Australia wants to be part of it and Britain wants to be part of it. Britain is bleeding to death through the whole Brexit shenanigans and Australia is finding itself alienated from the rest of the world. If Europe doesn't trust you, good luck getting markets. Now, whenever former Prime Ministers do speak publicly, of course the media takes interest in it. The community takes an interest as well. So whether that's John Howard, Tony Abbott, Kevin Rudd, Paul Keating or Julia Gillard, it doesn't really matter who that is. They're a former prime minister. So whatever they've got to say, it's going to be reported by the media and then promulgated through the media. So Turnbull, speaking at the National Press Club the other day, of course there's going to be a strong media interest in his views. But there's also a level of viciousness between these political rivals. We've seen this happen before, the Hawke-Keating dynamics in the 1980s, in the early 1990s, the Peacock-Howard rivalry in the late 1980s for the Liberal Party. The 
There was an extreme rivalry between Julia Gillard and Kevin Rudd in the early 2010s, although that was more driven by players behind the scenes in the Labor Party. Tony Abbott despised Malcolm Turnbull because he was the one that replaced him in 2015. There were massive political and ideological differences between these two, but essentially that's what their dispute was all about. Turnbull is then replaced by Morrison in 2018. Again, they're opposites politically, socially and ideologically. There are essential points that are brought up by former Prime Ministers, but sometimes we do have to take into account that these dynamics are occurring because they're bitter political rivals. No one ever became leader from being humble and retiring and shy and accepting of other people's flaws and differences. Certainly, all leaders have some of that in them. But there's a very great sense that the political is also personal. Look at Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump, Barack Obama, Donald Trump, George W. Bush, Donald Trump. And whereas you can see old political foes simmer, cool down and even become friends after the battles have ended, probably the most extraordinary was Malcolm Fraser and Gough Whitlam uniting over the Republic. It's not unusual to have this. John Gorton used to speak out against Billy McMahon all the time. And most of the cabinet and most of them loathed McMahon. And a lot of them didn't like John Gorton either. It's a weird thing. But yes, whenever a prime minister speaks out against the current government, I would guess somewhere between 30 and 70% of it is driven by the dislike of the incumbent. The one real exception here is Julia Gillard, who has fairly consistently or very consistently acted with grace and dignity in talking about current affairs, which says a lot about her, I think. Well, Malcolm Turnbull, he hasn't been holding back at all. And some people have suggested, well, he's actually taking on the role of the federal opposition as well. Like, that's how party's been going on about all of these issues. He also criticised Scott Morrison on the procurement of vaccines or, or the lack of procurement on vaccines last year, suggesting that Australia wouldn't actually be in the situation where half of Australia is in lockdown if Scott Morrison made those calls to Pfizer back in June 2020. And that's an issue that we've pointed out quite frequently over the past six months. So I'm glad that Malcolm Turnbull is finally agreeing with us. That's always a good sign. He said that he would have picked up the phone to the head of Pfizer and stitched up a deal for Australia. I think that's pretty obvious. That's what he would have done. Kevin Rudd has pretty much said the same thing, that that's what he would have done if he was in Scott Morrison's mm. position last year. So it seems like this is all very obvious, that this is what you would have to do as a prime minister, you have a problem, in this case, securing a vaccination deal that will lead the country out of COVID and create stability, and you sort it out. That's the job of a prime minister. Now, it all seems simple enough, but I think that we just have to accept that Scott Morrison just doesn't have those abilities. It's a little bit like asking someone with two broken legs to run a four-minute mile. Now, they might try and do that, but they just haven't got the ability to do that. And we wouldn't expect them to do that either. So I think that this is a case where Scott Morrison just doesn't have the ability to do these things that we would normally expect from a prime minister. And that's probably how all of these problems are being created. It's a lack of ability and it's a lack of competence. Yeah. M Morrison's main ideology comes from this extreme neoliberal idea. And I'm not even sure if he knows this, where you want government to be so ineffective that it stops business being constrained by health and safety, award wages, trade practices, etc. And so 
he's put in by businessmen who want incompetence in. Now, this is all very well when things are going fine. And it's not all business, too. I, I really must be fair on this. Uh, the most businesses are fairly ethical, fairly legal, and accept that a lot of restrictions are placed for the greater good. But there are those businesses who don't believe in the greater good. So you put in incompetence, you put in seat warmers, you put in people who aren't going to stop you. This is all very well till you get a genuine crisis like a pandemic. Gladys Berejiklian tried to mitigate it by speaking to business as part of the health plan, which hasn't gone down well. Scott Morrison has tried by platitudes. Oh, it's not a race. We'll get there. We'll be at the front of the queue, making promises that either he couldn't keep or he didn't keep. Not building quarantine facilities within the first three months, or at least planning to build them. We've had lots of plans for a plan. We've had lots of announcements to plan for a plan. We've had lots of announcements pending an announcement to plan for a plan. But he's just not able to push things through. And then he tries to sell it as PR. He's either not terribly good at PR or the things that he's doing are so substantial no amount of PR can hide it. And the final point that Malcolm Turnbull did point out is action on climate change or inaction on climate change as far as this federal government is concerned. So that's that was obviously a key issue for Malcolm Turnbull as Prime Minister. Unfortunately, he didn't do very much about it when he had the opportunity to do these things while he was Prime Minister. I guess that's a separate issue. We've always maintained that you, you try and implement all of these programs and ideas and issues when you are Prime Minister. It's no point trying to do it when you're not Prime Minister because you don't have that control and you don't have that influence anymore. But we've got this strange situation where Malcolm Turnbull, he'll actually be going to the COP26 meeting. That's the UN Climate Change Forum in late October. Malcolm Turnbull is going to be going there. There's a delegation of business leaders from Australia that are going along as well, including people like Andrew Forrest, for example. So we've got a situation where Malcolm Turnbull is definitely going to COP26. There's a possibility that Kevin Rudd might be going to COP26. So Scott Morrison is still toying up with this idea of whether he should go or not. But we've got this crazy situation. We've we've got former prime ministers that will be going over there, but the current prime minister will not be going there. Close listeners to this podcast will know that I'm always trying to look for positive in any candidate, even those I don't like. And I will say this in favour of Malcolm Turnbull. He won't embarrass Australia. He may, but it's unlikely he'll embarrass Australia in the way that Scott Morrison will embarrass Australia. Uh, Same with Kevin Rudd. They're both very urbane and sophisticated men with good intellects who know quite a lot of the people there and have built up good relationships with people going. Turnbull and Macron, I understand, get on very well. Rudd and Macron get on very well. Now, I don't know who's going from Germany, and uh, Angela Merkel has just retired, and there's a new German chancellor, which they haven't quite sorted out yet. But I'm pretty sure that Joe Biden, if he's there, won't forget either Malcolm Turnbull or Kevin Rudd's name if they get a meeting with him. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud, Spotify and Amazon Audible, or find us at newpolitics.com.au and you can now follow us at Patreon. Come down off your throne Leave your body alone Somebody's got to change 
Several weeks ago, we discussed how the Labor Party decided to put in Christina Keneally as a pre-selection candidate into the seat of Fowler in southwest Sydney. Now, we thought that this might have all been forgotten about because it's old news now, but it's been featuring recently in the mainstream media because that's what they do, and they're likely to run it as an issue to attack the Labor Party in the lead-up to the next federal election. Now, it's best to have a candidate selected by the membership of a political party but sometimes it's better to have the best candidate available. So we decided to go and find out what the message is on the ground. Adrian Boothman is a former staffer and advisor to federal member Chris Bowen, and David Lewis caught up with him to see if there's any different perspectives about installing Christina Keneally into the seat of Fowler, because we're not going to get that from the mainstream media, and this is what he had to say. Fowler was a seat you lived in for a long time, what are your thoughts about Christina Keneally getting pre-selection for Fowler? There is a long history, and I'm sure people can, you know, in their own time be able to look into that um, in terms of the machinations uh, between the factions uh, within the Labor Party. Um, and I'm sure that's been, been uh, done to death in terms of the media about that as well. Look, I think it's a great move. Christina Keneally is a outstanding front bench fighter in terms of the issues that matter. And, you know, especially her um, fierce advocacy for um, refugees um, in terms of advocating on behalf of persons that are stuck overseas, that's a huge issue for people who live in Fowler, where you have a, quite a high number of people from a culturally and linguistically diverse background as the electorate of Fowler is in southwestern Sydney, which obviously covers uh, Liverpool, Cabramatta and, and part of the, the Fairfield state electorates. Growing up in Villawood, uh, and uh, I have a you know a unique understanding in terms of those particular aspects that people continue to talk to me about. I get phone calls from people out there, principals of high schools or doctors or lawyers, for example, and and they're sharing their concerns with me as well. And look, at, on the whole, um, the feedback has been pretty positive from those conversations that I've had with people who live in the electorate. I feel that it wasn't Chris Hayes's decision to say, look, I want to leave to replace me. Uh, that at, at the end of the day, Chris Hayes, as well as you, as well as your audience would know, that's up to the rank and file. If there's not, I guess, the opportunity for members, uh, whether that's members within the Fowler electorate or even the admin committee, New South Wales Labor head office, to be able to make that decision, then look, I feel that, unfortunately, look, I, I love Chris Hayes, but I feel that he went a step too far in terms of going to the media in March and saying, look, this will be my preferred candidate because she's 30 years old, she's young, she's a lawyer, she's of Vietnamese background, which is a, a large cohort within that federal seat. She'll be a representative of the face of the Fowler electorate. There's a couple of issues here. Sue Lee hasn't been in the Labor Party for very long. Um, she doesn't even live in the electorate now as well. I feel that's a little bit of a furphy from Chris Hayes in relation to that. You know, I feel that he was just trying to stamp his legacy on the seat by naming his successor. It wasn't his decision to make. Christina will be an outstanding candidate and member for Fowler. I know there are concerns in relation to the fact of her background. Once again, I think that's a furphy. 
She's obviously from America, uh, like my wife is, funnily enough. You know, look, we, we all come from somewhere, David. And for people out there who've gone to the media uh, within the Labor Party and said that, you know, how can somebody who's white, in inverted commas, like Christina Keneally, can represent quite an ethnically diverse seat? Well, look look at the track record in Fowler in terms of representation. Chris Hayes, Julie Irwin, Ted Grace, like... As long as you've got somebody there fighting in your corner, then what difference does it make what race you are? If you've got somebody who has a proven track record, who fights for the issues that Labor believes in from a social justice perspective, then why are we looking at somebody who is a, you know, a novice, who doesn't have any political experience, who doesn't have the runs on the board that Christina Keneally has? But Labor should have a team that is going to take the fight up to the Liberal Nationals. And uh, for that to happen, it's the right choice. And I feel that she's going to do good uh, in that role. And, you know, look, I feel like the way that I look at it is she's going to do a great job in terms of representing not only her electorate, but also bringing the issues that are in the Fowler electorate on a federal level by being in that front bench position, as well as hopefully, fingers crossed, in a future Anthony Albanese Labor federal government. I know people are saying that, oh, Labor's wasting the opportunity by not having somebody who's from a Vietnamese background in that seat. Once again, I think that's a bit of a furphy. To be quite honest with you, I I think that's just people who are in political positions uh, within that area who feel that they themselves didn't have a chance to uh, step up and uh, contest the pre-selection for Fowler. Obviously, Look, these decisions are never easy. Politics is a a little bit of a a gamble uh, in terms of how you play your cards right. I feel on this occasion that head office has has made the right call in terms of making sure that Christina Keneally is secured in a safe seat. She's great talent. We need talent in politics. And I, you know, if there's anybody that's listening to this podcast who has an interest in making a difference in their country, then they should join one of the two main political parties. Join the Labor Party or join the Liberal Party. But don't just sit back and complain and be, um, you know, a um, armchair critic. Get involved and make a difference. You know, have an active say in the politics in this country and in terms of the community that's around you as well. So, look, I feel that, uh, like I said, Christina Keneally is an outstanding performer. Uh, She's got the runs on the board. She's going to do very well as the federal member for Fowler, as well as being in a front bench position in the lower house after the next federal election. And um, we'll see where we go from there. That's it for this new politics podcast. Thanks for listening in. If you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very, very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It helps keep our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.